today's teaching text is in Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. And then move over to chapter four, verse seven. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his autobiography constructed from his old journals and letters, Martin Luther King Jr. tells the story of a night when a brick was thrown through the window of his home and a bomb threat was put on his own family. And that particular night, he stayed up all night sitting at his kitchen table drinking coffee and talking to God, just saying, this is too much. I can endure anything that they throw at me, but not my children. Uh, Let them come after me, sure, but not where my babies sleep. If you're going with me, God, then I will go, but I need to know that it's you, Lord. I need to hear from you again tonight, right here in the thick of this mess, to know that it's you that I'm walking with. And as the sun rose on an all-nighter of anxiety-ridden, heart-rending prayer, he knew that God was leading him, and so he kept on going. And that night, says Dr. King, was the defining moment in the whole of the civil rights movement. Not Selma, not the Birmingham jail, not the bus boycott, not even the I have a dream speed. It was that night alone in prayer. And that's something like what Exodus 33 is. It's another liberation journey and another leader having that same experience. Moses is praying, but this prayer is different. This conversation with God becomes the defining moment in the entire liberation journey. It's not the Red Sea, it's not the 10 plagues, it's not the pillar of fire, it's not the manna breakfast. It's this prayer. You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may continue uh, to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. So Moses is ranting in response to a very strange invitation from God. Uh, They had been uh, going from Egyptian slavery into freedom, the whole nation of Israel, to this promised land that God had set apart for them, a place for rest. And there were some bumps in the road along the way, but it was, for the most part, a pretty great ride. And then there was this whole golden calf fiasco, and God essentially said, I can't do this anymore. Not like this, at least. I'm gonna send you into the promised land. You can have all of my blessings, everything you've wanted, but I can't go with you. All of my favor, all of my promises, but not my presence. What would you say to God? I'll let your life turn out exactly like you want it to. All of your preferred circumstances, all of them, but you can't have me. You will swim in the reality of every dream you've got for your future, but I can't go with you into that future. Would you take that deal? 
Behind one door, you've got life on your terms, guaranteed without God. Behind the other deal, door, you have a life of total mystery, a life that's full of blessing, sure, but full of suffering, absolutely, with God. Which door are you walking through, honestly? Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. So Moses picks door number two, and then he says this in verse 18, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. So Moses wants glory, but gets goodness. And there comes a point in every mature life of following Jesus where we find ourselves exactly here, convinced that we want glory, but being given goodness instead. Moses wants glory, but he gets goodness. Hang on to that. Uh, This is gonna be my last time with you for a little while. Tomorrow morning at an absurdly early hour, my family is gonna fly across the country to take some much needed rest and vacation. And I'm greatly looking forward to that. Throughout the summer, we are going to be in the book of, or the letter of Ephesians as a church. We're gonna go through every last word in that letter over the course of the summer. I'm gonna catch up with you sometime later in July. Bethany's gonna get us started next week with an introduction to the church at Ephesus. I'm really excited for where we're headed. But today, we are closing out a teaching series and practice titled The True and False Self. Now we began this journey into knowing God and subsequently knowing our true selves 10 weeks ago with a biblical picture. Peter on a beach with Jesus around a charcoal fire, finally being set free to live as his true self in a contested world. 10 weeks later, we're going to end this teaching series with another biblical picture, one whose scenery couldn't be more different, but the inner condition of the praying person is the same. This time it's Moses hidden in the cleft of a rock, asking for glory, but being given goodness. And what Moses discovered on that mountain, Solomon then turned into poetry so rich and vivid that it became the high point, the very apex by which the Hebrew people remembered Moses' life and the Exodus deliverance journey in the Passover. But there I'm getting ahead of myself. So I wanna go back and I wanna give you the full story. Song of Songs is a biblical love story written in the form of poetry. Today, it's mainly known as the pornographic scandal that someone forgot to remove or edit out from the middle of the Hebrew Bible. And that is both accurate and tragic. It's accurate because it is undoubtedly steeped in erotic imagery. But it's tragic because that erotic imagery has historically revealed an essential biblical theme in the most personal way. There are a few scholars out there that you can find that believe that Song of Songs is a love story between a man and a woman, and that's it. But the scholarly consensus and the historical view of the Christian church, dating all the way back through Hebrew history, is that this is a poem about God's loving pursuit of his people. It's a picture of God's passion for you and me, us taking the place of the woman or the bride, Jesus taking the place of the pursuer or the bridegroom. Eugene Peterson says, the only context in which the Song of Songs is found is the canon of Holy Scripture, 
which means it has to do with God. The erotic content must be read in the theological context. The ancients did not read the song devotionally because they were embarrassed by its sexuality, but because they understood sexuality in sacramental ways. Human love took its color from divine love. And the sociologist Philip Reef likewise says, in the Christian tradition, erotic language was freely used to represent a vivid imagery of ways in which the inward man reverses the object of his interest and reaches out toward God. And I would add even more profoundly the way that God turns his interest reaching out toward men and women. Karl Barth, the famous theologian, provides a really helpful framework for reading the Song of Songs where he says the whole thing finds its foundation in Genesis chapter two. He details this in his book, Church Dogmatics, and if a title like that won't make you reach for it on the shelf, <laughs> what will, right? So he says Genesis chapter two is the biblical foundation of the whole poem, arguing that it is the positive outworking of God's love uncorrupted by the fall. In other words, that bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh picture of intimacy were given between Adam and Eve in Genesis two is a picture of God's love for us. It's a grounded human intimacy to show us a picture of divine love, a picture of the love through which he will relate to us and pursue us, and it's that picture that's being explored through the poetry of eight chapters in Song of Songs. Eugene Peterson also writes extensively on the song later, and he agrees with Bart, but he also adds Exodus 15 into the mix as a second foundation. That's when Israel has crossed the Red Sea, and they break into this euphoric moment of worship and celebration on the opposite riverbank. Uh, he is saying that it's then that a people in a fallen, corrupted world experience that this pursuing love of God that we see in Genesis is still coming after them. So Peterson says that Genesis 2 plus Exodus 15 gives you the Song of Songs. That's why this Hebrew love poem, both historically and traditionally, was connected to the story of Moses and the Exodus and read at the Passover. But again, that's where we're going but we can't get there too fast. So I wanna give you the drama of the Song of Songs in three brief scenes this morning. First, uh, the self, then the seeker, and then the beloved. So here's act one, the self. Dark am I yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Dark am I yet lovely is unfortunately not an ancient equivalent to I'm black and I'm beautiful. This is not an ethnic statement, it is a defensive one. Throughout history, the general consensus on what makes someone attractive has always been a moving target. So today, people commonly lie in tanning beds to darken their skin because in modern Western culture, darkened skin is often seen as exotic and attractive. Or, or today, many people count calories and just bang out miles on the elliptical because thin is in. And so to be mu have a muscular and thin frame is commonly viewed as attractive. But the ancient Israelite definition of attractive was very different from ours. Theirs was much more like the Japanese geisha who hide their skin from the sun because fair skin was thought of as objectively attractive. Or the ancient European uh, vision of female beauty which was more plump and round than it was skinny and muscular. And all of that was largely because in the ancient world, beauty was tied to class. 
And to be dark was to be seen as a peasant. It was a day laborer forced to bake in the sun and wear calluses into your hands and knees. And to be thin was to be poor. It was to not have access to the rich food that was on uh, the table of the wealthy. Dark like the tents of Qadar, she says. That's a reference to the Arabic shelters that were made from tanned animal hides or, or coarse sackcloth. They had to be thick and tough to withstand the winds and the sun and the, and the sand, the elements of the desert and the wilderness. And so often they would get worn into this kind of spotty, brown, rough, sandpapery type texture. She even uses the term sackcloth, which is the, the uh, garment that Israelites would wrap themselves in to grieve. This is her description of herself. Do you see the imagery? She is telling the pursuer how she sees herself. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun, says verse six. Do you know what this feels like? to feel something like this toward God, to come in and out of God's presence, shame covered, to walk into a house of worship like this one, uh, wanting to be near God generally, but not seen by God in particular, wanting to be among those pursuing God, but really hoping he doesn't lock eyes with you and pick you out of the crowd. Because last night you just had to get in the last word. And then you ended up sleeping on the couch and you got up early enough this morning to put the pillow and blanket away before your kids woke up and put the pieces together. But God heard exactly what you said to her. Don't look at me because I'm dark. Or because that pattern still owns you and every time you count enough days to feel like you're safe, like it might stick this time, like you might really be free, you fall flat on your face again and you're losing the willpower to get back up. Don't look at me down here. Or because you made a mistake. You did something you didn't think you were capable of doing. Some part of yourself leaped out of you and it was a surprise to even you like a mirror is being held up in front of you to show you your reflection and you don't like what you're seeing. Or because something was done to you and it doesn't really matter if you were victim or perpetrator, abused or abuser, you feel dirty. Don't stare at me when I'm filthy like this, Lord. See, all of those, every last one of them are deceptions about God that are derived from the father of lies, not from the Abba Father. But all of those, every last one of those are real. They're real deceptions that we carry and real lies that we believe. And we don't just believe them in our minds, we feel them in our emotions and we carry them in our bodies and we live out of them with our actions and decisions. And so to return to a question I asked you a few weeks ago, what part of yourself are you afraid to look at in God's presence? And who told you to be afraid? She goes on, my mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyards I had to neglect. Don't look at me, I'm dark, that's part one. And there's a story of how I got this way, that's part two. My skin is dark because they made me work the vineyard. They made me bake beneath the sun. They made me sweat in the heat and wear calluses into my fingers. Everyone who's got a part one has a part two. Do you know what it's like to explain yourself to God? 
Here's how I got myself into this. Here's the story that explains my current condition. And intuitively, we know that there's a backstory behind every darkened condition. We know there's a dark childhood behind that person standing trial or a dark history of neglect behind that absent parent, or a gaping hole in the inner life, or even a a horrific abuser behind that person selling their body. But do I see the backstory that I bring to God? Because my own self-storytelling, it often reveals the deceptions that I carry about the God that I'm relating to. My first deception is this, there's a part of myself that I'm afraid to look at in God's presence, but the second deception is, and because of that, I've got some explaining to do. C.S. Lewis paints a really simple but vivid picture of this in the voyage of the Dawn Treader when Eustace and Lucy arrive at this uh, island and they meet Ramandu, a man who lives on the island. He's a wise older man and so Lucy asks him about himself and he says, I am a star at rest, my daughter, answered Ramandu. In our world, Eustace said, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what a star is made of. See, you might be a conundrum of mixed motives, mistakes, regrets, and destructive patterns. You might really be made of those things, but that is not who you are. And there are devastating consequences for confusing who I am with what I'm made of. There may be moments in your past that still play through your imagination like a highlight reel that you can't stop seeing. There may be wounds inflicted on you that you can't stop living from even when you identify them. Or you may have patterns as big as addiction or as small as just withdrawn an unavailable demeanor toward your spouse. Patterns that are robbing you of the life that you are meant to experience. That might really be what you're made of, but that is not who you are. Genesis says that you and I are dust. That's what we're made of. Who we are though, is breathed into us by the God who creates us. That's what sets us apart from every other aspect of creation. It's his image that he's put inside us. And it is that, his breath, that brings us back alive again as many times as it takes. As many times as we get confused and begin to believe that we are nothing but dust, that we diminish ourselves to what we're made of, he breathes into us again that we might remember who we are. Can you hear him? Can you hear him calling your name? Act two, the seeker. Picking up in chapter two, I am only a rose of Sharon. Now this could sound like humble bragging, but it's not. In the Hebrew, there's a hint of self-deprecation in the tone here. It's something like, I'm only a rose of Sharon. And then the voice of Christ breaks in, like a lily among thorns is my daughter, among the, or my darling among the young women. The false self that is given by the world, don't look at me, my skin is dark. There's a backstory though. Here's what they did to me, here's how I got this way, here's how I've had to live that explains what you're looking at when you see me. The false self is then replaced by the true self, by the same force that created the true self in the first place, it's the breath of God. He sees you there. He sees you right there in the self that you don't want to be and interrupts your self-storytelling and your explanation the same way the father does to the prodigal son. You are a lily among thorns. The misconception driving the self is then upended only by the introduction of the seeker. 
See, the deception that is buried in Song of Songs chapter one, it's the most ancient kind of deception. Uh, Remember, the enemy's strategy is rarely direct. It's an indirect attack that's his primary method. It's trust, not behavior that he aims for, because all behavior emerges from trust structure. Uh, Never does the serpent tell Eve to eat the fruit. Uh, But with everything the serpent says, he's chipping away at her trust in the Father. He demotes God to some good but lesser version of the God he revealed himself to be. Suddenly, Abba Father in Eve's eyes, at least for a moment, becomes the boss that you report to for your next kingdom assignment, or the personal trainer that you show up to every morning to get whipped into spiritual shape, or the earthly father you had who found a way after every piano recital or little league game to offer you the one thing that you could keep working on, or Maybe the earthly father who left, who was more interested in something else or living somewhere else than he was in watching you grow up. Song of Songs replaces all those deceptions with a restored identity. He calls us bride, and that means we can call him bridegroom. In each one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. In the letters to the church at Corinth and at Ephesus, Jesus is called bridegroom and you and I are named bride. In Revelation, heaven and earth are restored. The whole story comes to a close when the bride has made herself ready and everything breaks into a great wedding reception. Isaiah chapter 62 says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. Your Bible is a love story, and God's method of redemption is renewing the vows as many times as it takes until they finally stick somewhere deep within us. See, if you buy into the idea of a creator, the idea that God is love isn't that far behind. But the the challenging leap that Jesus asks us to make is to believe that God is in love. The Song of Songs is a poem wedged right into the middle of the great love story that begins with my action, with my desire, but it ends in God's action in his pursuit of me. If you read this poem closely, one of the themes you'll notice is there's this constant reversal of phrase, that in the first half of the poem, there are many declarations that the woman makes to the groom. But then later in the poem, the groom makes the same declarations back to her. For instance, early in the poem, uh, your love is better than wine, but later in the poem, Jesus says to the church, your love is better than wine. The greater revelation is that he is the pursuer. Most famously, it says in chapter two, the bride says, my beloved is mine and I am his. But then later in chapter seven, after so much depth and revelation in this journey of loving union with Christ, the truer reality hits her. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. See, the spiritual life can feel like, especially in the beginning, that I'm in pursuit of God. But the spiritual life is propelled forward only by the revelation that he is the one who is in pursuit of me that my pursuit of God pales in comparison to his passionate, tenacious, and loving pursuit of me. The simple revelation of the Song of Songs is this. Jesus is the seeker, not the sought. And the spiritual life is one that's propelled by an ever-deepening revelation of how strong, passionate, and alive that unquenchable reality really is. We love because he first loved us. 
Jesus is the seeker, not the sought. And that simple revelation affords us so much freedom. Because if you're the seeker, the journey originates with you and the spiritual journey is accelerated by you. You're the actor and God is passive, waiting to be acted upon. But if Jesus is the seeker, then that assures you that he'll come after you. That no matter how many times you get lost or lose the plot or become stagnant, you just get winded and lose the ability to want to keep going somewhere along the way, he will keep coming after you. If Jesus is the seeker, that frees you to seek him in return. Simon Tugwell writes, he has followed us into our own darkness. There where we thought we finally to escape him, we run straight into his arms. It's like that prayer of David, even darkness is as light to you. So we do not have to erect false piety for ourselves to give us hope of salvation. Our hope is in his determination to see us and he will not give in. See, this is the fuel of the spiritual life, the agent that propels us forward and accelerates our spiritual growth and vitality. It's the endless discovery that his love is stronger. It's stronger than my failure or my past or my great intentions and weak follow through. His love is stronger than my effort, stronger than my ideals, stronger than my spiritual disciplines and my plans and my commitment. I am never the pursuer. It's always him. There's this old rabbinical tale from the desert fathers and mothers about a man who went off to live solitary in the desert and he devoted his life to God through prayer and simplicity. And every day he would walk miles to get water from a well with his bucket. And then as years went by, he gradually just kind of grew weary of the routine and everything became so monotonous, so monotonous that he thought about giving up on the whole thing, giving up on God, giving up on prayer, giving up on the journey. And then finally, one day as he's on that same old walk, baking under that same desert sun, I'm gonna read from there. Once when he was going to draw water, he flagged and said to himself, what need is there for me to endure this toil? I shall come and live near the water. And saying this, he turned about and saw one following him and counting his footprints. And he questioned him saying, who are you? And he said, I'm an angel of the Lord and I am sent to count your footprints and give you your reward. And when he heard him, the old man's heart was stout and himself more ready, and he set his cell still further from the water. See, what keeps us walking with Jesus when we're weary, when his presence isn't palpable to us and his love feels far off, it's only the assurance that he is so in love that he won't let a single footprint go to waste. That, that he walks beside us always as our companion. And he knows every step that costs a little extra. He knows every thorn that gets caught in our foot. He knows every ache that emerges in one of our joints in the long journey of walking beside him. It's only the assurance that the one who numbers on the hairs of our heads and the one whose thoughts of us outnumber the grains of sand on, on the seashore is also the one who counts our steps. If there's a God that fully in love, then I can get up and walk again today. First John four, so we have come to know and to believe in the love God has for us. The destination of the spiritual life is not only believing, but knowing, yadaing, experiencing, relationally discovering the love that he has for us. As John Wimber said, the way in is the way on. 
We never graduate from that first part. We never graduate from his love. We never move beyond it. What invites us in is what leads us on, is what brings us home. The whole thing is about the love of God. It's unconditional love that draws us in and it's unconditional love that leads us on. The application of this sermon, the point of the Song of Songs, the grounding place we come to at the end of this whole teaching series is the hardest kind of application for people like us. It's to receive his love. So we're great at doing, if you give me a plan, I can execute the plan. But to receive, There is no plan, there's only surrender. It's love that draws us in, it's love that draws us on, and it's love that brings us home. All of our practices and our disciplines, all of our missions and efforts, in the end, they serve only to deepen that first revelation. I am my beloved's, and his desire, in spite of everything, is for me. It's his love that sparks the spiritual journey in the first place. It's his love that fuels the spiritual journey as we keep going. Act three, the beloved. And here we come to chapter four, the second part of our text. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. A story that begins with the voice of a woman, uh, a stand-in for you and me saying, don't look at me, I know what I look like, but I've got a reason for looking this way, what they did to me, how I ended up like this. That story ends, uh, it gets interrupted by another voice, the voice of Jesus, saying you're altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. There's no mention of a change to the woman's appearance There's no evidence that she became in her own eyes more beautiful. This is not a makeover. It's what you call flaws, I call beautiful. So the voice of Jesus in the Song of Songs reveals this. God is attracted to your blemishes. How can that be? My wife, Kirsten, she has a birthmark on her neck. And if she was to go and do a photo shoot for a magazine cover, they would Photoshop that part out. They would take the birthmark out. And that's because the photographer looking through the camera lens at her doesn't love her. And so he's looking at her only through an objective point of view. Therefore, he would remove every one of her blemishes. But I would never take that out because I love the birthmark on her neck. Because when you, when you love someone, it changes the way that you look at them forever. I can never, again, look at her through an objective lens. Because that birthmark on her neck is part of her unique beauty in my eyes. And that's how beauty works, right? It's, it's that scar just above your lip or that little crooked part of your nose or that birthmark on your neck. That is one of the things that makes you beautiful to me. Your little imperfections get woven into the way I see you as beautiful and I would never take them away. What if your flaws aren't repulsive to God? What if the parts of yourself that make you flinch, the parts of yourself that you wanna hide from him, the the parts of you that you're afraid to look at in God's presence, uh, what if he's such a redeemer that even your blemishes in the end reveal your beauty in his eyes? Back to Peterson, he says, we never know how good we can look, how delightful we can feel, or how strong we can be until we hear ourselves addressed in love by God. And Eckhart Tolle says, you find peace not by rearranging the circumstances of your life, but by realizing who you are at the deepest level. 
Peace is not idealized circumstances. It's not a lack of interruption to my will. Peace is discovering myself as his beloved. And the Song of Songs is a poem depicting God as a pursuer, smitten, fully intoxicated with passionate love for you and me. The great revelation of the whole thing is I am my beloved's and his desire, God's desire is for me. And now we're back where we started because that is what Moses discovered behind that rock, that he wasn't just useful to God, he was the beloved of God. Now show me your glory. Moses wants glory, but he gets goodness. So what's the difference? Well, uh, in Hebrew, glory is kavod, which literally means weight or greatness or power or authority. It's a word for the manifest presence of God, meaning the visible, tangible, here and now presence. And you gotta remember, I mean, this is Moses. Who, who watched God turn his staff into a snake and the Nile into a bloodbath and take every Egyptian firstborn overnight. And this is Moses, the guy that watched God part the Red Sea so that an entire nation could walk through on the muddy bottom. Moses, who ate heavenly cornflakes for breakfast and drank from rocks when he was thirsty. Moses, probably more than anyone in history up to this point, was acquainted with the glory of God, the kavod. And he says, more. Now God, give me more. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And goodness is the Hebrew tuv, which means best things, blessing, prosperity, beauty, kindness, joy. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I'm gonna give you my goodness now, God says. And that goodness is defined as mercy plus compassion. It's mercy, meaning I'm giving you my goodness not because of you, it's more like in spite of you. You have not earned it or, or accrued enough merit to somehow deserve it. It is a free gift because my love always has been and always will outpace your deserving. If you try to get this goodness or, or work out a why behind it, it will always be an equation that will not solve unless you take me at my word that you've ravished me with one glance of your eyes. Oh, and it's not just mercy, though, it's also compassion. That's the biblical word picture for the way that uh, a mother looks at her newborn child, which is the mystery of love at its apex, right? This child who so far has just like, uh, up to this point, put me through nine months of massive discomfort and most recently driven me through the most excruciating pain that a human being ever experiences in this life, immediately when I look at them for the first time, a kind of love surges through my body for them that is incomparable in any other human experience. It's the mystery of love at its apex, a doting, adoring, protecting, give anything to you that you need kind of love comes alive inside a mother. This, the Hebrew language says, is Compassion, you are not one among many, you are the one who has stolen my heart. When God says to Moses, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, he's saying something like that. 
I'm gonna have that kind of compassion on you, that kind of love for you in a way that you can feel and it's got nothing to do with the merit you've accrued up to this point. It's mercy. Goodness in the Old Testament is the word used when Joseph reveals himself to his father and brothers and by a son that they thought was long dead, Jacob now goes from starving in a drought to absolute abundance. It shows up again in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Zechariah and Nehemiah when they paint a picture of God rescuing these exiled people not just to freedom but to abundance, not just to water and grain but to wine and oil. It's Isaiah's choice word for the act of God that provokes praise, not awestruck worship, but dancing, shouting, clapping, celebratory praise. And Moses' experience then turned into David's prayer. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Tov, that's who you are. And who you were to Moses, now be to me. That's what David's praying. And if you know anything about his life, it was a prayer that was answered. Goodness in the New Testament shows up when Jesus calls his message good news. It's news, meaning I'm reporting presently on a past event. You cannot change this, and it's not subjective information. And this news is about mercy plus compassion that's passing in front of you. Every last one of you. In Hebrews, we're told that the very best of God we experience now is just a shadow of the good things that he has in store for those who have the audacity to accept his love. Philippians says that our confidence rests, meaning it relaxes. It puts its feet up and leans back against the, the fact that our confidence rests on the fact that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And Jesus chooses this word, too, out of the whole biblical lexicon when he says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, Moses was acquainted with the power of God and the authority of God. He knew a God of answered prayer and risk and breakthrough. He knew a God of fire, and he asked for more, more of the glory that got him this far. And God says, I'm going to give you something better. Goodness, my best things, my blessings, my prosperity, beauty, kindness, and joy, that's what I wanna give you now. What got you here won't get you there. What got you here was glory, but what leads you on the next leg of this journey is goodness. You've been telling me to lead these people, but if you don't go with us, I'm not going. That's where the prayer starts. But just like that great reversal in the Song of Songs, when God gets Moses to be still, to stop living in the future and just be present with him for a moment, to stop thinking about leadership and strategy and next steps, to stop thinking about mission and maps, he discovers what we're all invited to discover, that Jesus is the seeker, not the sought. Sit back, relax on that rock, Mo. I got something to show you, and it's not the glory you're asking for. It's better than that. It's my goodness. And here's what Moses discovered there. The one who delivers you delights in you. The God of supernatural power, 10 plagues, splitting seas, clouds by day, fires by night, the God before whom you took off your shoes and fell flat on your face is also the God who meets eyes with you 
seeing plainly all the insecurity and fear that you keep hidden from the world around you and then says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. The one who delivers you delights in you. That's what Moses discovered behind that rock. Have you discovered that? In February of 2020, I was watching all my wildest kingdom dreams come true. I was pastoring the church that I planted in Brooklyn, surrounded by the community that I loved. We had just opened a storefront prayer room on Broadway in one of the most statistically secularized post-Christian places on the globe. And I was watching as the community that I led became a radical people of prayer, and I was watching as the city around me became curious enough to step into that very prayer room and try talking to this God. And I was watching as the stories began to follow. But I did have this nagging thought in the back of my mind while I was experiencing all that. Almost like God was tapping me on the shoulder to get my attention, but I was too busy with his glory to pay much attention to it. But he was whispering to me something about my children that somehow, in a way that I couldn't and honestly still can't entirely put my finger on the way I was going after that mission was costing me as a father and that somehow I might inherit all the promises that I longed to know as a pastor but pay a cost as a dad along the way that I would never pay if I knew the charge up front. And then through a series of events that I never saw coming, we moved to Portland and began to fall in love with a new community and a new city, living that same old mission. And people would ask me all the time, how's it going with Bridgetown? Old friends, new friends, other pastors, complete strangers. I got that question all the time. And so I developed a stock answer, the way that you do when you constantly get the same question, like, how are you doing? Fine. And my stock answer was, oh, I've never felt like more a pawn in God's game. And what I meant by that was God moved me to this church at this time because there's this community that just so happens to be hungry for the very things that God has put deepest in me. And I've never felt more like, oh, God picked me up from one coast and dropped me on another because he wanted to lead this community into this new ground that they were taking. And he had selected me to get to go on that journey with them as something like a trail guide. And I believe that. I think there's real truth to that. That I'm just a pawn, God sees the whole board, and that his great passion is his bride. It is the collective church. And I also heard the Spirit whisper to me once, after saying that line for the thousandth time to some other person asking that same old question, and that whisper was a question back to me, a really simple question that went something like this, what if that's not why you're here? What if that's a glory story? And this is about goodness. What if everything you dreamed for the church really was coming alive in Brooklyn? And I could have given all of it to you there, but you would have been charged a cost that you never would have paid. So what if I willingly traded, sacrificed kingdom impact for a gift as personal as memories with your little boys that you'll think, still think about in old age? Could God's love really be that big? and that personal. 
I mean, what if I'm not primarily a vessel through which he gets his work done, but I'm a person that he loves enough to, I would trade kingdom efficiency any day of the week for just one more square inch of your heart, that kind of love. And what if I'm less like one of the apostles in the book of Acts showing up to a new city with a new mission and an exciting fresh call and I'm more like Moses crouched behind that rock. Now show me more of your glory, Lord. And he says, Tyler, son, I've got something else to show you now and it's not the glory you're asking for. It's goodness. Because what got you here won't get you there. And what if I'm standing in front of you today, not primarily so that you can take ground on a kingdom mission, though that has been happening and it will continue, but what if I'm standing in front of you first and foremost as a living invitation to a God who loves you more personally than you could ever imagine? A God who loves you so completely that it reverses the order of the equation from my desires for him to, oh my word, his desire is for me. What if I'm not just useful to God? I'm the beloved of God. See, I don't have a perfect read on God's voice and me trying to figure out exactly what the Spirit's doing or saying is more comical than a gnat trying to understand a rocket scientist, but I do know this much. I know that it's his goodness that awakens the true self. I know that if you dare to believe that you are his beloved and that his desire, absurd as this sounds, really is for you, that this key fits the lock to your soul and awakens you in a way that allows you to come alive in a contested world, really alive. So I wanna close here, not just for today, but for this teaching series. The one who delivers you delights in you. The ancient Hebrews held the mighty God of Exodus power and the loving God of poetic affection together in this holiday feast. The celebration of Passover, that's the very highest of the high holidays, the one that, where they remembered the Exodus journey. It was a long meal full of courses and each one of those courses represented a different highlight on the highlight reel of his liberation and deliverance. It's a now show me your glory kind of celebration. But that feast culminated in an unlikely place. It ended when an elder would stand up and everyone else would lean back in their chairs stuffed from the holiday feast. And that elder would read Song of Songs cover to cover, all eight chapters. And the message of that was that after they had remembered all the deliverance, they would remember the one who delivers you delights in you. A feast that starts with glory would always end in goodness. Jesus seems to pick up on that very same message when he celebrated his final Passover meal, which today we call the Last Supper or the Eucharist or communion, depending on your tradition, when he broke bread that represented his body and poured wine representing his shed blood, and then he sat around a table with his disciples. That was a Passover table. And what he did at that table was dripping with Song of Songs imagery. Because Song of Songs is a love story that ends with a proposal. It, we never see the wedding. It, it stops short, the credits roll and the camera pans out with the will you marry me moment. And, and the final words that hang in the air over the Passover feast would be something like that, the ancient equivalent to will you marry me. Now proposal in the first century worked a little bit different than it does in modern day America. People didn't drop to a knee with a ring. Instead it went down like this. On a random night, a young man would show up at the house of the girl he loves along with his in, all of his friends and family. It was a communal event. Talk about pressure. 
So they would meet up at his house and walk through the village all the way to hers, completely unannounced, but the way they showed up in mass would signal what was going down. The potential groom would then sit down at the family's kitchen table across from the potential bride and then slide a, wedding, or a uh, wine glass to her across the table. Now, if she drinks it, she says yes. If she doesn't drink it, she says no. That's how it would go down in first century Israel. Jesus, at a final dinner with his disciples, just before his death, slides a wine glass across the table and says, take this, drink it. The communion table, where we remember the ultimate deliverance that was won for us on the cross, is also a table of proposal because the one who delivers you delights in you. And what does Jesus say when he slides that glass to his disciples? He says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for you and for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm waiting, I'm holding out after tonight for a taste of this wine glass with you again. When? When heaven comes to earth. In Revelation 19, heaven comes to earth this way. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It's a wedding. That's where the story ends. That's where Jesus is gonna drink of the wine glass with you and I again. Uh, when deliverance is completed by love, when what began with glory finally wraps up with everlasting goodness, where you discover for all time that the one who delivers you is also the one who delights in you. And the early church took this so much more seriously than we commonly do today. Uh, they read the Song of Songs like it was a love letter from God. We mostly skip over it because it's too risque for theology or too abstract for philosophy. In 1 Corinthians 6, though, the Apostle Paul uses sexual imagery to describe our union with Christ. He quotes Genesis 2, the foundation of the song, as a picture of sexual intimacy between Adam and Eve to explain what happens when anyone receives God's love. Some sects within the early church would only take communion of the bread and the wine behind closed and locked doors with their brothers and sisters. Why? Because sexual intimacy is a private, not a public event, and this is that intimate when we come to his table. That was the logic behind their practice. In the fourth century, the church assimilated the fertility symbol of the Roman Empire into their Easter services as a way of saying that when Christ rose from the grave, he consummated his union with his bride. That's the church. It's so intimate that it might make you squirm a little bit. But the message is the one who delivers you delights in you. He adores you. He desires you.